How's it going, Mike? Five. Oh, they find out that quickly? Cool. Yeah, they'll just kick you out for a few minutes and then say, um, yes, so if you're a master's student and you have an oral exam in the future, pick Michael's brain about what's involved because there's no practice exam published or anything like that. So. And, and people get brainwashed the next day. So there's a little thing we haven't looked into. Um, okay, so let's see. A couple of things. We'll finish up nonlinear optics today. Um, I'm looking, there's not that many days left of class, and I'm trying to figure out how to spend it. One issue that came up was that the last day of class is the uh, 13th, and my understanding is that's also the day of the physics banquet. So I think everyone should have the chance to go to the physics banquet. So I posted a thread in the discussion forum, in the anonymous discussion forum, with a couple different options for how we can spend that day. So typically I would have a review session the last day. I don't want people to feel like they're missing out on something they go or don't go to the banquet. Um, you're certainly welcome to go. I won't hold it against you if you don't. But um, if you want, we could have the review session the day before and then cover new content the last day. And that new content would not be in the final. Um, or at that point, you may be saying, why even have class, which is the third option. We can cancel class. But I don't want to do that unless, unless uh, that's what people want. So I don't know. Someone told me. Who told me? Paul, you told me. The timing, it's usually sort of dinner time-ish. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. It would clash with this class. No, I think you'd have to choose to go to either or. So, yeah. so, so you, please you just. Don't go to it? Well, I'm contractually obligated to be here. So. <laughs> <laughs> if class is canceled, I will go, but I'm not going to cancel <laughs> class um, unless that's the will of the. The students, so. I'll vote the council just so you can go to the back. <laughs> okay. Can, can I ask a question about the final? Because it starts yeah. extremely late. Yeah. Is there any way, if we decide to start it earlier, so we can do it a little earlier? Yeah, so. Because it started, it's scheduled for like 1.5 to 10. Well, how about this? I don't know that there would be a classroom available because finals get kind of crazy with that. But if I posted it on the internet at a certain time and then said you can come in and drop it off during that uh, designated time frame, that'd be okay. But it would probably be a take-home final in the sense of like, you know, I'll make this available a few hours before class. It's still take-home, but it's not like here's a week to work on it. Khadija? <laughs> You're like, library is calling me. Um, okay, so yeah, I'll, I'll figure out something with that because a couple comments about it being late have come up. So, um, all right, uh, a couple other things to address. Last time there was a little bit of confusion, largely on my part, about some of the notation that was used. So I went through and I tried to sort out a few things. And it turns out that it's one of those things where um, 
in the attempt to make the notation not technically conflicting, uh, Yuri Vignet, and correspondingly myself, uh, used notation which was technically correct, but pretty idiotic at the same time. <laughs> OK, so uh, I'm reviewing here a little bit uh, from our previous slides where we're looking at the wave equation in a nonlinear material. And we used uh, couple mode analysis to derive these expressions to the rate of change of three different waves. So you're doing three wave mixing. And the one, two, and three represented the three different frequencies of wave. And in each one of these, the subscript here i just represents one polarization component. So this i is one polarization component. This j and k are other polarization components. But because you have to sum over these, these are just sort of dummy indices. Right? They, don't, they, rep, they cyclically go through x, y, and z. Um, and for this expression, i, j, and k are completely independent of this expression. I mean, this k has nothing to do with that k. Right? Each one has three dummy indices, i, j, and k. So what would have made sense is to call this i, this i, and this i. And if you did that, this would be dijk, this would be dijk, and this would be dijk. But later on, when the waves mix and these different waves get put into the same expression, it didn't make sense to have the same dummy index there as it did there, because then it would look like you're supposed to sum over them when they're two separate things. So to avoid that, uh, your Evenier called just cyclically permuted these and called this one k, but then you have to call this k, and this becomes dkij instead of ijk. And it looks like that somehow this should be equal, and permuting those indices should give you the same value, and that's not the case. They're just dummy indices. So I fixed that in the notes, so hopefully it makes more sense. Maybe it's a little bit too late for your purposes, but I will update the notes. Uh, so in the next week or so, I'll publish an update to all of the lecture notes. So you have those for the final. Um, and so, just, yeah, basically all these equations that used the, uh, the dijks in them then get updated. So our final result, which is what we were staring at when we were talking about quasi-phase matching and phase matching and um, all these various expressions, has a dijk in it, and that is just, I think in the form that I had in the notes, it was djik. And that was only because we were working on a particular um, output field, which was one that had the indices permuted for the reason I mentioned earlier. But if we redefine that output field as polarized along i and call the input fields polarized along j and k, where j and k may be the same as i or different than i, depending on uh, how we're cycling through them, then we get a much more conventional form. And the form of our electro-optic tensor is consistent with the way we typically write it. I think everything uh, makes sense. One thing that wasn't in the notes that I found when I was going back to look at uh, that I really need to point out, just to be clear, is that when we take this expression for the electric field, this field component has 
I guess, nine different elements that add up, or nine different terms that add up to give me this field component. Right? So for any value of i, there are three possible values for j, three possible values for k. That means nine possible values for this product. And those nine possible values times the corresponding nine elements of this tensor give me nine terms that add up to this. And because electric fields obey superposition, I should add up all nine terms and then square this to get an intensity. But if you look at what's written here, this expression is just this expression squared. And so that only works if you assume that there's only one term that's significant. And so if there's and typically there is. There's either one value of dijk that's much larger than the others. We saw that with Piplin. Or there's only one value for which you're phase matched. For which, uh, yeah, for which that term is, is not close to zero. And so typically there'd only be one value that's, that's relevant. Actually two, because you can always permute the j and k. And you get the same, same expression. So. If there's only one term that's significant, then it doesn't matter whether you square the field first, or there's nothing to add up. So you don't have to worry about the difference between squaring the field versus uh, I mean, adding fields and then squaring, or squaring and then adding. So in that, in that and only that case, uh, can we say the intensity is given by uh, the square of this expression. And that's what's in the notes, is that the intensity is the square of that expression. So. Um, it does make that assumption. And you'll notice then, there's no reason to put a subscript on the intensity. The, if this is uh, the dominant intensity, we don't have to talk about which polarization component it is. It's a, the total intensity then. And so in this expression, this i gets orphaned. It appears there on the right side, and it doesn't appear anywhere else. So. This term, dijk, the j and k's get summed over. Or, I'm sorry, they don't get summed over. The ijk values you choose are the ones that correspond to the largest value of d or to the polarization state which you have phase matching. That's it. And then you choose <coughs> ij and ik correspondingly. Well, the field is still polarized in I, but because that's essentially the only output field you have, you're neglecting all the other terms, we can just say the total intensity is this, okay. and stating that the polarization component along I is that is redundant. Okay. And back to when they weren't all the They get contracted. Well, no, so it's, yeah. it's propagating along a particular direction. That direction is not necessarily one of the principal axes. So in general, you still have to consider all three possible values for j and k, although there's some constraints on the relationship between ej and ek. Okay, so that's the clarification from last time. And 
I remember what, yes, what slide to jump to. It's where we start third order nonlinear optics. It's 44 in my slides. If you're following along in the notes, it's probably a few earlier because I inserted some slides on Piplin. Is it right? Okay. Okay, fair enough. Um, okay, so that concludes our discussion of three wave mixing. Three wave mixing was you know, two input waves interacting, producing a nonlinearity. Um, or interacting through a nonlinearity, producing a single output wave. We can now talk about the effect that this, not this second order term, but this third order term has in the nonlinear polarization component. And because the electric fields that we're typically dealing with are small compared to, well, because they're typically small compared to the magnitude of these coefficients, um, these lower order terms tend to dominate. And so usually the higher order terms would not be observable unless you have a material where, through some symmetry reason, the lower order terms had to be zero. Okay, so in a centrosymmetric material, Dijk has to equal zero. So remember that the uh, electro-optic tensor comes from charges being displaced from or being asymmetrically located through the crystal so that an applied electric field can interact differently in different directions. So in a centrosymmetric material, that's not the case. There's no electro-optic coefficient, and therefore there's no nonlinear electro-optic coefficient. Okay, so in that case, the dominant nonlinearity is, is this third-order term. So the third-order term, because it's proportional to E cubed, there are going to be three, in general, three interacting electric fields that combine to produce this. This is the source, then, for the new field, which is the fourth wave. So we call this four-wave mixing when it's the third-order nonlinearity being used, just like we called it three-wave mixing when it was the second-order nonlinearity being used. Okay, so the linear electro-optic effect was called the Pockels effect. And the second order electro-optic effect was called the Kerr effect. And likewise, in nonlinear optics, the second order term here gives rise to a Pockels nonlinear effect. This term gives rise to what we call the Kerr nonlinear effect. A um, couple other things. This chi, this is a tensor. There are three possible electric field components that interact to produce a fourth wave. So this chi is going to be a 3 by 3 by 3 by 3 tensor. Okay. Four subscripts. Yeah, because we added one more vector on the right. We have to add one more subscript here to produce a vector output. So the notation and the calculations become that much more complicated or, or space-consuming. Uh, we will mostly deal with some sort of phenomenological effects. And I'd 
don't think I write out the full, we're not going to do the nonlinear wave equation with this. We've already done that once. I think we can imagine it, uh, it could be done again using this nonlinearity. We will look at uh, some general effects. Um, and we'll brush a lot of the tensor properties of this chi under the rug. Okay, so here's our th third order nonlinearity. We can separate out this E cubed into an E squared and an E. And two reasons we might want to do that. One is that the electric field squared is related to an observable, the intensity. Right, so this is the intensity. The other reason we might want to do that is because we then end up with um, a polarization that is proportional to E. Or at least it's, if you consider the intensity as something different than the electric field, then you could say there's this constant of proportionality that relates it to E, which is just what the linear polarization is constant of proportionality that relates the polarization to E. And that constant of proportionality, which we call chi, is related to the index of refraction. So recall then that, uh, just as a quick little review, that the electric displacement is epsilon E. And epsilon is epsilon naught times 1 plus chi. And we can also write the electric displacement as epsilon naught E plus polarization. And putting all this together, we can see that, uh, oh, one more thing. Uh, epsilon over epsilon naught is n squared. So putting all that together, n squared is equal to 1 plus chi. Okay. Okay, so from our sort of original description of what epsilon is, the relationship between d and e, the expansion of d into the electric field part and the, the material polarization, representation of the material polarization in terms of a constant times the electric field, we can work out then that this is related to the index of refraction, this chi. And so in a linear material, we just say n squared is 1 plus chi. Um, now if we treat this as some sort of uh, this term in front of the E as some uh, nonlinear part of chi or some change to chi, delta chi, I'll call it delta chi, and I can say the change to n due to that nonlinear part is going to be related to delta chi. So from n squared, if I differentiate this, I can get uh, 2n dn, differentiating the left side, differentiating the right side, I get d chi. So writing this in a discrete form. I get a relationship between delta chi, how much the um, 
linear atomic susceptibility, or the, the atomic susceptibility gets varied from the zero field condition by this nonlinear component, that affects the index of refraction that the light sees. So now with delta chi being just this term in front of the E, the 4 chi 3, where chi 3 is just the third term in our Taylor series expansion. This is not raised to the third power times e squared. This, this was the nonlinear part of the polarization. Well, I can write this e squared as i um, with a couple constants in front, uh, one half eta. Then delta n is some constant times intensity. This constant is entirely dependent on the material. So we can separate, separate out the part that depends on the material from the intensity. The part that depends on the material we call N2. Uh, so the electric field, so I is one half eta e squared. Is it one over two eta? Does that work? Well, eta is so it's the definition of irradiance is where that comes from. From the one over mu naught e plus three or e plus eta. Well, so S is equal to E cross H, right? And uh, yeah, um, and B is equal to C at E over C. Right? I think so. Okay, so putting that together, um, we have E squared over C mu, and C is uh, square root of mu epsilon, one over that. So this is looking right. And eta is the square root of mu over epsilon. So, yeah, it's, uh, this is 1 over eta times e, I forgot my squared. And now, if I time average that, to get the irradiance, I get the 1 half from the time average. 
Michael's like <laughs> thinking. No, no, no. It's just this is very much like a oral exam question. You must be enjoying sitting in the audience for this. One. <laughs> okay, so uh, the index of refraction of the material has a component that's n. It depends on the, uh, the material itself. And it has a component that depends on the irradiating field, the irradiation. So n plus n2i. The index of refraction is a function of the intensity of the light going through it. So that is the care effect. And that is the, the nonlinear care effect. Yeah, so that little thing is definition. So n2 is 4 eta chi 3 over epsilon, not n. And it's not a real index of refraction, is it? No, it's just a, well, I mean, it contributes to the index of refraction. The term n2 just represents the fact that that's the part of the index that depends on the electric field squared. Yes? So typical, you can see this for care glasses, glasses where this is observable, N2 is on this order. You need feel, you need intensities on the order of you know, 10 to the minus 7, or 10 to the 7 watts per centimeter squared. You need large field intensities for this to be observable. Um, so at low intensity, that's negligible at higher intensity. Is that N also a function of frequency? This N, this N yeah. Well, so yeah, this is still the normal, this is normal N. This is just the index of refraction that you would normally have that oh. comes from the Selmayr equations or, or its frequency dependence comes from the Selmayr equations. And this is a correction that says how that changes as a function of intensity. Uh, and so, second well, uh, well, no. Because it has an n in the denominator, but also uh, this chi three works. This comes from a Taylor series expansion of the polarization. Um, well, okay, no. I don't want to say something that any, any more than that. So it's definitely a function of frequency, but you've noticed probably now that the frequency dependence is rather small, usually shows up in the second, third decimal points. This itself is rather small, so we're not going to deal with the frequency dependence of that at all. So this gives rise to a couple interesting and useful effects. One is called a care lens. 
it's a window, just a piece of glass that's flat on both sides and uh, plain parallel surfaces. And the idea here is that if you illuminate this with a Gaussian beam, or more generally, a beam that has a non-uniform intensity profile, so not a plane wave, that the regions of higher intensity will change the index of refraction more than the regions of lower intensity. And once you have a gradient index in the material, you have a gradient index lens. Okay, so for the case of a Gaussian beam, the center of the material sees a greater change in the index of refraction. Its index of refraction increases. Uh, N2 is generally a positive number. So its index increases relative to the outside. That's kind of like making the center thicker in terms of the optical path length of a ray passing through. And so if the light gets a greater phase delay going through here than it does through here, then you get your plane wavefront coming out curved. That means it's focusing. And you can work out the focal length of that care index lens. So if you start with some known profile for your Gaussian beam, you can plug that in to your expression for the index. When you go through your material, the phase shift that you get is just k naught nd. If you go through a thickness d of material of index n, right, that's the, the phase shift you get. This is the static part. The part that is a function of intensity, so the n plus n2, if we factor out the n2 over here and write it over here, this term is not going to be uh, constant along the transverse plane because the intensity is not constant here in R. So uh, this Gaussian at the center of the Gaussian looks quadratic. Another way of saying that is you can take the Taylor series expansion of a Gaussian around this point in order to express this as a polynomial in a form that we can uh, more easily manipulate. And you have an average value. You have a slope. The center is 0. And then the next highest term is, is the quadratic term. Okay, So um, e to the x is approximately 1 plus x. That's our Taylor series expansion. If we have e to the minus r squared over w squared, then you can see that first term that appears in our Taylor series expansion, the first non-zero term, is that quadratic term. And so expanding that, we can write this term as a constant part and a quadratic part. That quadratic part gives rise to this quadratic curvature of the wavefront. And we can compare that to a lens. Or we can ask where that will focus. OK, 
Okay, so I guess that's worked out here where I plug in the minus r squared over w squared. in for this term. And this is the quadratic component to that phase shift. Okay, so this phase at a distance r away from the center is given here. And we can ask where that's going to focus. So the wave, you think in the ray picture, the rays travel perpendicular to the wave fronts. Okay, so the question becomes then, what is the distance to which those rays overlap? Or what is the radius of this circle, if you write that as a circular wave front? So that's F is R F squared minus R squared. So this phase shift uh, phi of R corresponds to a free space propagation since phi is equal to k naught n call it delta x a given phase shift corresponds to traveling through free space of a distance delta x okay so this phase shift phi of r means the wavefront is delayed by a distance phi of r over k naught n. So that's this distance here. This dotted line? Yeah. Yeah, that's the output of, so that's the, uh, that's the outside of the window okay. right there. Okay. And then I'm drawing a wavefront. Uh, that has just left the glass in the center, but at the edges has left earlier, and so it's propagated an additional distance. So phi r is the phase of that top part, how much more the phase is advanced compared to what's now in Yeah, phi of r is okay. the phase right here at a distance r. So the wavefront has propagated that much further at that point. And then we know that distance. We can say, let me just call that uh, delta x. And I guess I can say that delta x plus x squared minus r squared equals f. This distance plus this distance equals that distance. And okay. 
now I can, let's see, why don't I bring this over here and square both sides. And I'll neglect terms of second order and delta x. And I can solve this, I guess the f squareds cancel, I can solve it for f. f is going to equal r squared over 2 delta x. My delta x was phi of r over k naught n. I want to find the focal length in air, so n will go to 1. And then there's my phi of r. So I'll plug that in. R squareds cancel. K naughts cancel. Does that match what I've got there? It does. So the focal length is inversely proportional to the intensity. Higher intensity, shorter focal length, tighter focus, stronger lens. That makes sense. Uh, we expect the low intensity limit, there's no care lens, it's an infinite focal length lens. Um, and it depends on the shape of the beam because the more, the steeper that gradient of intensity, the stronger the effective curvature of the lens. Okay, so this can be a problematic thing for you if you're designing an optical system or it can be a, a feature that can be exploited. It means if you have very high intensities, you can't just propagate beams through windows and have them do what you might expect them to do. Um, however, if you want to, to somehow differentiate between fields of different intensities, this can be a way to do it. And so that's done in Q-switched lasers, so I'll call it a, a passively Q-switched laser. Does anybody know what a Q-switched laser is? Yep. So why would you do that? Build up the pump power, the energy stored in the laser, and then extract it all in a very short time interval to get high intensities. So that's desirable for all sorts of applications when you either need high peak intensity or short pulse duration. Okay, so one way of doing that is to essentially have a, a shutter in here that opens and closes to let light through. Uh, that would be an actively Q-switched laser. Passively Q-switched laser is easier to, to operate. It doesn't have the active element. but it has a care window or a care lens in here. So there's just a, a window. And what will happen is 
you can, you can sort of analyze the system for two possible states. Um, at low lasing intensity, or at low power in the cavity, this is just a window. And if you put in, let's say, an aperture, a pinhole in the system right here, if your lasing mode say looks like this, that pinhole is going to block most of the, most of the mode. Okay, it's essentially a shutter preventing that mode from oscillating. At high power, though, the same mode would introduce a care lens here. I'll draw it as if it's an actual lens. That will focus the light down. And if you have placed your pinhole appropriately, you can arrange for that mode to have low loss going through the, the pinhole and still be resonant. Still, uh, still be resonant in this cavity. And that, because it's low loss, can resonate. And you can get laser gain. So this laser will only oscillate when the intensity is high. So how does the intensity get high in the first place? From the right mirror to the left mirror? Well, so this mirror here has a shape that matches the wavefront shape, so that the light just retraces itself. That's, and that's generally in a, what's called a stable cavity. That's a property of a stable cavity, that the wavefront shape matches the mirror shape, such that the, the resonating light forms a mode. It repeats itself after every round trip. Well, it's now a diverging beam, and so it's basically being collimated. I mean, it's just it's uh, your favorite uh, property at play here, time reversal symmetry uh -huh. coming to. So, it's like, so I get it. So it's like it's coming at a point, the focal point, and it goes parallel. Yeah, so what's going to happen is you pump this full of energy. That energy has to go somewhere. It can stay in the material for a little while, and then it eventually decays and goes everywhere. And if that energy happens to, if those photons that are emitted happen to get reflected by the mirror, they come back, they stimulate more emission, and you get gain. And then as they bounce back and forth between the mirrors, that's where you get the buildup until the, uh, until the light leaking out the mirrors equals the additional power being added, and then it's in a steady state. Okay, now, normally you'd get some sort of CW steady state being reached. But in this condition, um, the energetically favorable condition for this to operate in is one where the uh, circulating field is not a continuous wave, but a pulse going back and forth. And so as you pump power into this laser, it builds up, it builds up until the pulse comes and extracts it. There's more power. There's more energy stored in the laser, so it can extract more more power, <coughs> and that pulse grows to very high intensity, at the expense of the circulating intensity when the pulse is not there. So you get the same amount of total energy.
circulating in the laser cavity is just now compressed into a narrow pulse instead of spread out over a uniform CW wave filling this. And so what happens is, when this pulse passes through this care window, essentially the laser has a lens here and is in a, there's low internal losses and the gain can exceed the losses and you can get it build up. When the pulse is not present, this is like a shutter and it prevents low intensity beams from, from resonating and sucking the power out of this, this uh, lasing material. And so the, the pulse forms by itself spontaneously. Think of uh, just random fluctuations in the intensity and the ones that are, the bigger ones transmit more efficiently through here than the, the, the valleys of the random fluctuations. And those big ones then build up until they form a stable pulse. Well, the pulse, a fraction of it leaks out every time it hits here. So this is a, say R equals 99% mirror. Your pulse comes in, 1% will leak out, 99% reflects. And then the power that you add builds that back up. So that the next round trip, it's so the same. Well, so it will pass through here, it will get amplified. When it goes through here to a higher power level, assuming there's no other losses, when it comes back here, um, it's, it's the power that got added equals the amount of power that, that left. It, if, if that's not the case, if it's more powerful, it builds up. And it keeps building up until that condition is met. Right? It will keep building up until it's extracted all the energy out of here and can't build up anymore. And at that point, it will start to lose power as every round trip it leaks out until an equilibrium is reached, where the amount that it's losing on every round trip is equal to the amount that it can, that it can uh, get pumped, that it can get put back into it by two passes through that laser medium. Yeah, it, it reflects and comes back. Mm -hmm. And when it passes through, this is an amplifier, so when it passes through, it, it's... There's a pump. That wasn't true. that. So that's now it's a saturated medium. Right. So when that pulse comes back, has the pump had enough time to energize the medium enough that the pulse can take more energy? Well, this is why you want to do this Q-switching, to give the medium time to recover so that you're extracting more and more energy uh, into these short pulses. 
If this cavity were ultra short, if it were, say, an etalon, uh, then maybe it wouldn't have had enough time. Or if your gain medium, alternatively, if your gain medium has a very uh, long time frame, a long time constant, that might not be necessary. But, um, but if it hasn't, then you won't put as much power in as you lost over here. And if that's the case, your pulse is going to decrease in size until it's not sucking as much power out of the, the lasing material. And once it reaches that point, that the amount of power it does suck out equals the 1% loss, then you have steady state reached. So yes, so the, the, the steady state condition is that the output, so the round trip losses of the laser cavity equals the round trip gain. If that's the case, your circulating pulse or field is not building up or decaying. It's constant. And you have an output pulse every round trip? And you get an output pulse every round trip. Yep. It's just an echo, right? It's just an echo. Of a, if you think of it as a single pulse going back and forth, what comes out here is it's sort of like an echo of the pulse every. So you can say the pulse repetition rate is going to be C over 2L. So, I mean, that's a bit of an aside. The class isn't about lasers, but it shows an interesting application of one of these, the care lens. And so um, I think the next thing that we'll talk about next week is ultra-fast optics. There's some interesting applications both of nonlinear optics into ultra-fast optics, but also um, uses of ultra-fast optics for nonlinear optics. One of the reasons you want to generate uh, short, pulse, short pulses of laser light is that for the same amount of same amount of average power, you can get much higher peak powers. Right? Higher peak powers means higher peak intensities, means higher peak electric fields, means more efficiency when you do nonlinear optics. Okay, so this is a device that both has a nonlinear optic in it and would be used probably to drive nonlinear optic. Yeah. What do you plug in for Phi? For Phi? Yeah. Well, we plug in. So this was this was the Phi of R. So this is the Phi independent of R. We don't care about that. That's just a static phase shift. This is the part that varies with R. And because we don't want to work with an exponential, we did a Taylor series expansion of this. And that gave us one part which was static. And the Taylor series expansion gave us a static part and a part that varied quadratically with R. So the part that varied quadratically with R is the here times the K naught ND is the part of the phase that varies with R. That's what we plugged in. That, that's it. Yep. Uh, so uh, we know two static terms. Yes. So there's a contribution. So what we have here is we have an intensity that's always positive, right? And intensities are always positive. And even though it's varying with R, it has an average value measured across the optic. And that average value gives rise to an average change of the index of refraction. And that average change, that 
That, that is the 1 times i not k not n2 d. So it no different than if you were to just make this a little bit thicker window, or you were to move the window slightly in one direction, or you were to displace your coordinate system by a small amount in one direction. Yeah, but you see, I'm not following that because I'm looking at the formula, and if I were to throw caution to an and plug into constant tune, it will affect my focal length, right? No, it won't, because it will affect uh, the location of It would just shift the position of the wavefront relative to this dotted line without changing the relative curvature of the wavefront. It's a curvature of the wavefront that leads to the focusing. Okay, so some other interesting effects that come from this uh, care nonlinearity. One, I said we wouldn't do much with the wave equation, and I don't know, we don't really need to do it here, but uh, I'm debating, I, I feel kind of bad putting this in here because we do all this math and then I just wave my hands and quote a solution, so, <laughs> so let's skip it. Um, Let's say that we have a material that's not just a thin window, but a large bulk material that our light is propagating through, and it's a carrot lens. Then we know from the case of the window, it behaves like a lens. It's going to focus the light down. Um, but let's not assume that we have a plane wave. Or our, our Gaussian beams going through the window should spread out due to diffraction. Now if we've got a lens focusing it down, if the focusing it down just balances the spreading out, we can get that beam to propagate without spreading out, without focusing. It's called a soliton. Spatial soliton. Its, it's amplitude profile does not change. Normally you'd have your Gaussian beam uh, spreading out as it propagates through a material due to diffraction. And here, the self-focusing prevents that. And you can kind of show that. This is, the wave, this is the spatial dependence of the wave equation. We factor out all the time dependence. This is what's left. It's called the Helmholtz equation. It's just a spatial part of it. And so we can just plug in for n our n of i. Instead of, instead of treating n as a constant, we can write it as a function of i. We can use the slowly varying envelope approximation, where we're letting the amplitude change along the direction of propagation. It changes because of diffraction. It can also change because it's being focused down. So the intensity is growing as it, it moves towards a focus. But that's all slow compared to the optical wavelength, so we neglect the second order terms. And then we uh, are left with this. We can write the effect of the uh, care medium 
is this term here. It's the difference between the uh, the, the nonlinear index and the, the index without any intensity. And you can simplify that using a, a couple uh, assumptions, like that difference is small. Therefore, um, this term is just n2. Bottom line is we get a form of the wave equation that Soleil and Teich say that looks exactly like the Schrodinger, the, the nonlinear Schrodinger equation, which I trust is the case, but I'm not at all <laughs> more familiar with the nonlinear Schrodinger equation or its solutions. But sure enough, if you go to Wikipedia and look up nonlinear Schrodinger equation, you see that it does have this form. And they, it's a second reference. It states that it does have known solutions. So uh, the known solutions are this form. And what's important here is that the the z component, this is, this is not the, the wave itself, this is just the, well, this was the amplitude of the wave, which was allowed to vary in z. Now that amplitude only varies in x and y, and the z component only affects the phase. So we have an amplitude that's invariant along z, along the direction of propagation. Okay, so those are a couple instances where having this nonlinearity could be a good thing, or it could be interesting. You can do some useful things with it, uh, like inside these lasers. Uh, creating spatial solitons is kind of interesting. You can get a, a, a beam that propagates without spreading. Uh, so it's sort of like a self-created waveguide, if you like. Um, there's some bad things that come from this. There's some unintended effects. One is called cross-phase modulation. And the reason it's called cross-phase modulation is it's an effect that appears in um, integrated optics, particularly those that you might have, say, in the telecom industry, where you have sort of a chip. This chip is an optical chip. might be lithium nibate with some waveguides on it. And I'll just draw a very simple case where we've got, um, oh, let's see, too simple. Let me draw, this is a little bit schematic, but you can see I've got a wavelength division multiplexer that combines multiple wavelengths into a single waveguide. They'll propagate along that waveguide, and eventually they get split by a demultiplexer. Now, we can write the nonlinear polarization because it depends on E cubed, and the electric field has two different wavelengths adding up. Here's the electric field due to one frequency. Here's the electric field due to another frequency. Those add up. That's the total electric field. That's what gets cubed. And when I expand this product, there are going to be the terms that look like omega 1 cubed. Or, I'm 
sorry, oh, three, 3 omega 1. Yeah, so this term cubed, 3 omega 1. There would be terms that look like 3 omega 2. Then there would be the cross terms. There would be terms that look like 2 omega 1 plus omega 2, 2 omega 1 minus omega 2, right? And then there will be all the permutations of that. 2 omega 2 plus omega 1, 2 omega 2 minus omega 1. So you have all these different uh, frequency components. Um, and there will be a frequency component at omega 1 that comes from uh, Let me see if I can see this now. I'm sorry? So these are cosines, yeah. yes. Those are cosines. I wrote them this way so we could see how the frequencies combine more easily. Um, so if I just consider, and this made sense to me yesterday. Well, I can say this. If I consider the effect that field 2 has on field 1, I can consider the case where I have e squared times e, like I did before. And the component of this nonlinear polarization that comes from the e squared part being the electric field field 2 and the linear e part being field 1, then I have the index of refraction by field 1 being influenced by the intensity of field 2. And that's expressed by this delta n. And I'm blanking on the making the connections then from here to those, those numbers. Um, and so if you have multiple waves going through this waveguide, the properties of this waveguide, these multiplexers and demultiplexers, oftentimes depend very precisely on the, the phase shift that the light gets going through the waveguide and the relative phase shift that different wavelengths get uh, is what determines which port they get routed to. And so if that phase shift is affected by the intensity, say, of field two, Field 1 may not get routed entirely to port 1, but some of it may leak out to port 2. That's what we call crosstalk, two channels interfering with each other. Um, right, and that's wavelength division multiplexing. So we'll talk about that um, probably our last class. We'll talk about integrated optics and sort of how all this stuff gets put into photonic circuits. So that's this. Um, OK, so all these processes that we're describing today, 
involved the third order nonlinearity, and I said that was four wave mixing. So we have three different components that contribute to the fourth frequency term. Um, so we can write that as the electric field being the sum of three different, possibly three different frequency components. Um, we think of it as three photons interacting. And so we allow each of them to have a different frequency and potentially a different polarization. Then, as we saw when I was looking at the last slide and pointing out the different ways those frequencies can combine, you get frequencies at the various sums and differences of the input frequencies. Okay, so if this is our expression for the total field and we cube it, we're going to have terms that go like omega 1 plus omega 2 plus omega 3, and then every combination of plus and minus any three of those fields you can you can get. Would the minus be not considered energy? Uh, well, energy needs to be conserved for it to be an efficient interaction. But the polarization will have components at all the different frequencies. And for the for that polarization to emit a photon and for energy to be conserved, that frequency has to Satisfy conservation of energy. So, okay, so this is our conservation of energy equation for four wave mixing. We now treat it as two input photons producing two output photons, uh, and so the frequencies are allowed to shift. Input. No. And we're not going through the math. But when you work this out, if you look at um, if you look at the different ways you can combine these electric fields, you can have a plus omega 1 and a minus omega 2. It's beats. And so the omega 4 that you get. Um, you can have an expression as a sum of two minus a third, and that's the one that's going to be similar optical frequencies. So there's a couple different things you can do. This is Fourier mixing. You can consider omega-1 and omega-2, um, the total energy of those two photons. If that's the same as the energy of a single photon for three-wave mixing, you get all the same effects. You can have an OPO, you can have different frequency generation, some frequency generation, second harmonic. Uh, in the case of an OPO, for example, instead of taking, say, a one micron photon and splitting it up into a two micron and a four micron photon, something like that, you'd have to have two two micron photons adding up to give you the same energy as a single one micron photon. So you take, instead of having a single pump photon, imagine two pump photons of half the energy. Uh, combining for the same types of processes. Likewise, we need phase matching. So phase matching looks like this. And it can be met with non-collinear interaction relatively easily. Um, having linear, having forward mixing in a collinear case is usually over-constrained and is not efficient. You generally don't see collinear four-wave mixing. So that means if you have a 
a uh, four-wave mixing process, usually you have some frequency component that's radiating out in an annulus in a cone. So one interesting application that we can get to uh, today is called phase conjugation. So phase conjugation, to conjugate implies complex conjugate, but it also implies some sort of reversal, as in the sign of I being reversed. And in our case, the phase front of a beam will be conjugated or will be reversed. So we'll consider our electric field as being the superposition of a bunch of different frequency components, three different frequency components. And it, because I write it exponential, there can be plus or minus those components. And for those four waves, the three frequency components that add up and then the fourth one that gets generated by that interaction, um, we'll let fields one and two be counterpropagating plane waves. So they have the same uh, K vectors, but in opposite directions. So I've written them both as K1. So field two looks like E naught E to the I K1. Field one is E naught E to the minus I K1. If that's the case, then E4 is going to look like um, an E1 and an E2 because their phases are in the, because they're propagating in opposite directions uh, their k vectors are in opposite directions so 3 and 4 also have to be in opposite directions uh, in order for this phase matching condition to have a chance So for them to be in opposite directions, they have to be, or E4 is going to be proportional to the complex conjugate of E3. Okay, so the magnitude of E4 is proportional to E01, E02 times complex conjugate of E3. If we write field E3 as being some amplitude times some phase, and this phase has a spatial component, then the complex conjugate, that i, just goes to a minus i. That changes the sign of omega t, which just causes it to propagate in the opposite direction. That's why we needed it to be the, uh, the complex conjugate. But it also changes the sign of that spatial, that spatial wavefront. Okay? If we compare that to a mirror, a mirror changes the direction of propagation of the light, but it doesn't change the sign of the wavefront. So if you have a flat mirror and a curved wavefront coming in, so there's a diverging wave, what comes out? It's still a diverging wave. That's uniform across the whole surface. So, no, I don't know what you're talking about here, though. So, what, what does it mean to change the sign of the phase? Is that the same as 180 degree phase shift? I guess not. I don't know what I mean. 
if we, okay, so if we have waves that looks like e to the i 5r minus omega t. So this 5r, make it easy, uh, think about it as k dot r, it's a plane wave. Uh, so that's a wave propagating in the forwards direction, assuming k dot r is positive. If you change the sign there, that's the same wave propagating in the opposite direction. At an instant in time, if you take a snapshot and you ask what does the wavefront look like, that term is constant. The wavefront is just this 5r. That doesn't change. The mirror changes the sign of this term, which changes the direction. But if you were to also change the sign of this term, you wouldn't be changing the direction anymore. Or I it would be equivalent to just rotating your perspective. So a mirror just changes the sign of the time dependence, causes it to travel in the opposite direction or time reverse. But if you also change the sign of the spatial component, then you're producing a, a conjugate of the wavefront as opposed to a reflected version of the wavefront. Yes. Okay, so if we take a snapshot at a certain instant in time, if 5r has not changed, get the same phase front. If it's a conjugate, let me see. Um, well, so the conjugate wave front. So not only is the time dependence reversed, so it's going in the opposite direction, but the spatial dependence gets reversed. What's that? Oh yeah, yeah, so, so let's let it propagate a moment later. What we get is the wavefront tracing its path back. So regardless of what your mirror surface looks like here, this is just what this is. This is a nonlinear material with counterpropagating waves going through it that set up a grating. If you like a standing wave. One wave comes in, reflects off of that grating, and it reflects at every point such that it traces itself back. And so if you have, say, a perfectly uniform plane wave coming into some optical system that has aberration, so that wave gets aberrated. If you reflect that off of a regular mirror and then send it through that aberration, you'll now have twice as much aberration. But if you reflect it off of a phase conjugate mirror, because the, the spatial dependence gets inverted, when this traces its way back through this distorting medium, it undoes the distortion. So it means you could 
say, take a camera, take the lens here, the film plane here, and put a Coke bottle in between, and you'd get a terrible image. But then you add a phase conjugate mirror, send the light back through the Coke bottle. You could undo those aberrations, and then refocus it down and recover the undistorted image. But how is that useful? But I, I, I say how it's useful, but it seems like it's going back where it came from. We have this screen on the right side. Yeah, so it's going back where it came from. Uh, so it's useful, for example, if you have a highly distorting material that, say, needs to be inside of a laser oscillator. Okay, for, it needs to be in there, and for whatever reason, you can't, you can't make it uh, so that it has low aberration. Okay, so normally, your wave fronts in the mirror will get highly aberrated by that, and I mentioned that one of the requirements for an oscillator is that the surface of the mirror has to match the phase front so that it retraces itself on every round trip. So if that's not possible, or maybe this distortion is changing in time, your mirror would have to adapt dynamically. Um, so if you use a phase conjugate mirror, that automatically satisfies that condition. And the, and the wave fronts will, when they retrace themselves, will perfectly retrace themselves. And so a cavity with one phase conjugate mirror is always a stable cavity. Well, as long as the time change is slow compared to the round trip time, it will be so, and that's generally, you know, nanoseconds. Um, so this is used to correct, for example, in uh, so the National Ignition Facility, the Livermore laser that pounds on little deuterium pellets and tries to get fusion. Very high powers. Uh, it needs to be focused down to a small spot. That means you can't have a lot of aberrations. Uh, but the elements that are in the system cause aberrations. They get corrected for by a phase conjugate mirror. Um, so there's thermal, all the thermal effects produce a lot of the aberrations. Anyhow, uh, that's just a, sort of a quick overview of third order effects. Um, do post on the discussion board what you want to do with the last day of class.